morning again, church. My name is Ellie. I have the honor of reading for you twice this morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, all, that all that might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He was to come to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was of he, or this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, he has been made, or he has made him known. This is God's word for us today. Good morning. My name is Greg. I'm one of the elders here at Redemption as well, and it's my privilege to continue the Advent series that Danny started last week from John chapter 1 that Ellie just read. Um, some of you know that my wife Lisa and I just returned from India about a, a week and a half ago, and we were, went on behalf of Redemption to explore partnering opportunities with some of the churches and some of the pastors in Mumbai, India in particular. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. Um, but one of the things I was interested to find out about India is that they actually celebrate Christmas in India. There's a national holiday. And I thought this was interesting because the, the country is 80% Hindu and only 2% Christian. Um, it's one of the least reached countries in the world. And maybe this is part of the carryover from British colonialism. I, I'm assuming that's the reason. But the Christians that we met said that this was the best time of year for them to share the gospel openly. Christianity is very restricted in India. They have to be very careful about what they do. It was, it was illegal for Lisa and I actually officially to go there on any sort of religious mission or for any sort of religious purpose. It would be illegal for me to preach in one of the Indian churches even. And so they have to be very careful. But during Christmas time, they can share the gospel. And he said that's the time Indians are most interested in what Christianity is about. I did a little more searching this week, and I, I found out that not only India, but most countries in the world celebrate Christmas. I kind of put that in air quotes. Billions and billions of people celebrate what we know to be the birth of Christ, right? The day that Christ was born. In fact, 
I don't know if you, you see the map up here, there's only a very small number of countries, communist China and then Islam countries in the Middle East that don't have a public holiday. And some countries have up to three days of public holidays celebrating Christmas. Now, we can imagine that this celebration of Christmas is to varying degrees, right? Even in America, the, 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 the celebration of Christ's birth is very questionable. I was reading a New York Times article yesterday that was um, entitled, Rituals That Make the Season Meaningful. Notice there's no Christmas there, there's no Jesus there, it's just rituals that make the season meaningful. People are looking for meaning, but they're looking for it in all kinds of ways. The, the top three ways that the article talked about were movies, food, and music. And um, interestingly enough, it's become a thing to watch Harry Potter movies between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's like a really popular thing, the way that people find meaning during this season. And of course, uh, food is a big deal, making cookies, making gingerbreads, uh, secret family recipes that only come out at Christmas time. You know, but, but this is the world that we live in, right? We, we've come to become familiar with this and to expect this in our very secularized culture that in this whole article, there was no mention of the birth of Jesus. There was no mention of any attendance of church. But we as Christians have rituals as well, rituals that help us find what the true meaning of Christ, Christmas is, of the significance of Jesus' birth. And one of those rituals is coming to church and listening to an Advent sermon like you're listening to right now. So every year around this time, pastors talk about the birth of Christ. And so this Christmas, this Advent, we've decided to look at John chapter 1. And John goes back farther than any other gospel, right? Matthew and Luke, they go back to the, the Mary and Joseph and, and even the birth of John the Baptist. But John goes back even farther to before the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's this exalted picture of who Jesus is and the revelation of the significance that he's our creator, he's our maker, he brings light, he brings life to this world. And so today I'm going to focus in on what difference it makes that Jesus came. And the big idea for today is that this newborn child gives believers the power to become the children of God. We see this in verse 12. It says, But all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now this word right, ESV has translated this Greek word right. I'm not sure why they did that. Some translations you'll see will read, uh, will, will translate the word power. And, and this word in John and in the New Testament is primarily translated as power. And I think that's the best way to understand it here this morning. That's what I'm going to argue for this morning. This newborn child, Jesus... The word that became flesh gives believers the power to become children of God. And this is significant because before Jesus came, this was not a thing. This was not a possibility. We did not have the power. We did not have the ability to become children of God. And so John develops this theme by talking, first of all, about those without this power. Those without power, verses 9 to 11. And there's two groups of people that John identifies that do not have the power to become children of God. The world 
and even his own people, Jesus' own people. So let's look first of all at the world in verses 9 and 10. Notice what he says here. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So this is the crazy thing, right? Jesus, the Word, made the world, created the world. Everything came into being by him, and yet he came to the world. He became flesh, became a man, and the world didn't know him, didn't recognize him, didn't receive him, didn't acknowledge him. This is very strange. Why is this a reality? Why did this happen? Of course, you know, the whole Bible explains this, especially Genesis 1 through 11. It, it explains the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, creating mankind on the earth to rule the earth, and, and everything was good. God said everything was very good. And yet we know there was this thing that God put in the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He warned mankind. He said, don't eat from that tree. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet he put the tree there. Right? He allowed the snake into the garden to tempt Eve. And so this is the story of the fall of mankind. This is the story of the estrangement between God, the creator, and his creation, mankind. And the Old Testament develops this theme. And John talks about that right here. So that when Jesus comes, the creator comes into the world, even though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. Now, what John introduces here in chapter 1, he further develops throughout his gospel, particularly in chapter 3. He gives us a little bit more details of, of what this is like when Jesus comes into the world and the world's response to Jesus. In chapter 3, verses 16 to 21, we see some more details here. Now, 316 is maybe the most famous verse in the world that we all know, right? But often we don't read the verses after it. So let's read uh, 3.16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I've just underlined some words to look at here, to focus on. Notice, this is, this is, John is talking about God loving the world, sending Jesus into the world. Whoever believes in him can have eternal life. But whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever believes in him does not believe is condemned already. So Jesus comes to a condemned world. He didn't come to condemn us. We were already condemned. Do you see that? If we believe in him, we escape that condemnation. We're not condemned anymore. But if we do not believe, we remain condemned. We're condemned already. And what is this condemnation? What is the judgment on the world? This is the strange thing. The world loves the darkness. That's a strong word, right? Loves the darkness. It says it, that the world hates the light. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. That's all of us, right? 
So there's some strange attraction, some strange love of darkness, of evil, of wickedness. So Jesus, the light, comes into the world. He exposes this, but there is a a resistance to that. There's a desire to stay in the darkness. This is why we need something to help us escape the darkness. This is why we need Jesus to give us the power to become sons of God, because we are unable. There's a greater power at work in our lives, a love for darkness, a love, an interest, a curiosity, a fascination with evil. So this is the first group that Jesus, that John identifies here, that Jesus comes to the world. He came to the world, but the world did not know him. Now there's a second group John identifies here in verse 11. It's his own people. Notice it says here, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, who's this talking about? Well, this is obviously talking about the Jewish people, the people of Israel. Jesus was a Jewish man. And there is a long history. This is the Old Testament history about God's relationship to Israel. Started way back with a man named Abraham. We read of in Genesis chapter 12. Danny went through uh, this, a series talking about Abraham earlier this year. We looked closely at God coming to him making a promise to Abraham, I will be your God. I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing. In fact, I I will bless the whole world through you and your descendants, the Jewish people. And so there's this long history. The people become enslaved in Egypt, and God delivers them from slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the wilderness into the promised land. He says, look, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Keep my ways. Keep my covenant, and I will bless you. I will strengthen you. I I will make you a light to the nations. Of course, we know that the story doesn't turn out that great. Israel fails to in their part of the covenant with God. And so there's all these promises of a Messiah. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, the fulfillment of their history, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. And he comes, and one would expect that they would receive him, that they would believe in him. But in fact, the opposite happens, right? When he came to them, his own people did not receive him. Now, why? This is very strange. Again, why do they not receive him? Again, this is a theme that John introduces here in chapter 1, and then he develops throughout the book of John. You'll see throughout the book of John, there's this clash between Jesus and his own people. One particular place we see this most clearly is in chapter 8. This is an extended uh, dialogue, a debate between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of the day, of, of Israel of the day. So let's just look at this for a minute, and, and we'll get a, some insight into why they did not receive Jesus. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 39, they answered him, this is the, the religious leaders answering Jesus, and they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. That's their claim. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot. There's an important word there. You cannot. They are unable. They do not have the power to to hear my 
word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Very strong statement by Jesus there, but he's saying your will is captivated by someone called the devil. And so what you want to do is what he wants you to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? You see this conflict, right? They're saying, look, you're crazy. You have a demon. You're a Samaritan. And, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming from God to you. I'm telling you the truth. I'm trying to explain to you what God wants for you. But you can't hear me because you actually are captivated by the devil and to do the devil's will. So these are strong words that John says, right? They're, they're, they're strong words. They're, 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 they're words that are kind of shocking. But they tell us why we need this power that Jesus brings, this power that Jesus gives to become the children of God. Because on our own, in our natural state, we just won't, we just won't look to him. We just won't believe him. We just won't receive him. We're hostile towards him. We love the opposite of who Jesus is and what he brings to us. Now, sometimes theologians call this total depravity. This is a word a lot of people don't like, right? It, it's, it sounds very offensive. But it's simply, the, it's simply what we're looking at here, right? It's that Jesus comes to us, but in our natural state, without his aid, we do not want what he has to offer, we don't love him. In fact, John says we hate the light. We love the darkness. This is our natural state. The Apostle Paul also vividly described what we might call here as total depravity as being dead in sin in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. This is Paul's description of the human condition apart from Christ's giving us the power to believe. Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead is a very strong word, right? We're dead in our sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He uses the word world here as well. The, the world has a certain course, and it's going away from Christ, away from the light. It's according to the prince of the power of the air. Here's, that's a reference again to the devil. And the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived, right? This is the natural human condition. This is where we all start. This is where we all come from. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, by nature are children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? So there's a huge contrast here. In our natural state, there's this very powerful force within us in which we are just going a certain direction away from God. And it requires a greater power to overcome our unbelief, our resistance to God, our, desire, our natural desires. This is the power that Jesus gives. And this is what we often refer to as regeneration. Going from being dead to being alive. God making us alive. 
And this is what happens in verses 12 and 13 here in John 1. This is what it means when Jesus gives power to become the children of God. And so let's look at those who are given power in verses 12 to 13. They are first described as those who receive and believe Jesus Christ in verse 12. Notice it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, or he gave the power to become children of God. Now, when we read verses 9 through 11, it looks as if nobody in the world, right? He's talking about the world and even, even the Jewish people, God's own people. They all reject him. No one receives him. So you would think Jesus faces total rejection, and then John, John just kind of bursts out here. He says, but to all who did receive him, right? To all who did believe in him, he gave the power. Who are these people? Well, this is what the Bible also often refers to as the remnant, the remnant, a small portion of humanity who come to Jesus. Jesus said, the way to life is narrow, and few are those who find it. We might, we might want to know why, and I don't know why that is, but for, for whatever reason, it's a small number of people who actually end up coming to Jesus. But they are the ones who he gave the power to become the children of God. Now, there is some question here. What comes first? Belief in Jesus or regeneration, this power to believe? Right Now, some people say God sent his son into the world and, and he did this thing and then this message goes out and, and of all the people in the world, whoever believes in him, they're the ones who God regenerates or gives life. They're the ones who Jesus gives power to become the children of God. There's another, this is a theological debate, right? There are other people who say, well, God sent his son into the world and, 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 and he goes, the message goes out into the world and no one would believe unless God first regenerates them, quickens them, gives them life. And so that's the big theological question. What comes first, faith or regeneration? Now, I would suggest to you that John in verse 13 wants to make it clear that it's, it's not we who, who first believe. It's God who first must do a work in our life. Notice what it says in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Right? Those who receive this power from Jesus Christ, they are born of God. And John seems to be really intent on saying it's not it's not anything human, right? It's not of blood. It's not something that you inherit in your family by blood. It's not the will of the flesh. Our flesh doesn't, doesn't will this. It's not even the will of man. It's God's will alone. Now think about this for a second. I have four children. They're all, they're all very different. If you have multiple children, you know it's amazing how, how, how different siblings can be, even though they both come from... Lisa and I, and they, they were raised in the same family, very different, very different gifts, talents, ideas, personalities, likes, dislikes. But they all have one thing in common, right? None of them chose to be my kids. <laughs> I think they're happy to be my kids. I think they like me, my kids. But, but, you know, none of them chose it, right? That was not their decision. Lisa and I, that was our decision. It was from the union of our marriage. We came together. We decided we want to have kids. And by God's grace, we had kids. It was our but it was our will, it was our, it was our decision. And I think this is the picture that John is painting, right? God chose to have some children. It was his decision, his initiative. 
He has to start the process. And I think John confirms this throughout his gospel. If you read the gospel of John, you'll see he'll say things like this in in chapter 8, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We don't naturally do it. We're not drawn to him. God must first draw us. Jesus said even to his own disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. They didn't send in their applications to Jesus saying, I I want to be a disciple, here's my qualifications. You know, Jesus came up to them and said, follow me. And they followed him. I think Paul makes this even clearer in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. These are a few verses after the verses we read earlier about being dead in our sins. And and, And Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Notice that there. Faith is necessary. We, we willingly, freely believe, but that's not even of ourselves, right? And if you think about this, you have to ask yourself this question. Why did you believe? If you're a believer here today, why did you believe in Jesus? Was it because you're a little smarter than people who don't believe in him? Are you a little better in some way? Are you a little morally superior? I think if we're honest, we'd have to say No. It's a gift. It's of grace. It is the power that this newborn child gives to us. I look at that in my own life. If my salvation in any way depends upon me, I'm lost, right? I can't hold on to Jesus. I can't hold on. I don't have the faith to hold on to him. He must hold on to me, and I believe that he will. And this is very freeing, actually, when you come to believe this. Sometimes people feel this is offensive, but I feel it's very freeing. We don't have to hold on to Jesus. He holds on to us. He keeps us. Now, some people misunderstand this. It doesn't mean that God forces us against our will to become Christians. That's silly. That's ridiculous. What he does is he frees our will, right? Luther talked about something called the bondage of the will. Before Jesus gives us this power, our wills are held in bondage. That's what we read earlier in John, right? We want to do the wills of our father, the devil, when we are unsaved. And so a work must have to be done to free our will, to enliven, to quicken our will so that we want to believe. When we, when we become a Christian, it, it's, it feels as if it's something that we do. And it is something that we do. There is a little bit of mystery here. There's a little bit of paradox here. But the older we become as a Christian, the more we understand our weakness, our sinful tendencies, and so forth. We look back upon our salvation, and we tend to reflect, and we say, wow, it was God's grace in my life that brought me to faith. And so I think that's what John is saying here. This is what Jesus does. He comes into the world and he gives us the power to become children of God. And so the question we just want to ask this morning is simply this. Has Jesus given you the power to become a child of God? Are you becoming a child of God? Now, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, the thing that I always heard again and again was, you need to pray a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart. Now, this is not a biblical idea, but then as I got older, you know, if I questioned whether I was saved or not, people would say, well, did you pray a prayer to receive Jesus into your heart? I'd say, yeah, I did it several times, just to be sure. You know? <laughs> and, uh, but this is not the best way to, to try to become assured of your salvation. And what I want to suggest this morning is that there are four marks of a child of God. And as we close today, I'd like to just Just go over these things. There's probably more than these, but I would argue there are not less 
than these four marks. These are essential, and these will help you understand this morning if you are a child of God. The first mark is simply this, belief in Jesus. That's what we're seeing here in John, right? This is the first step. This is the conception of the new birth. And just like a physical child, you know, when there's physical conception, the doctors tell us there's this flash of light when the sperm and the egg meet, there's this flash of light and light begins. And think about what happens over the next 20 years from that, what starts as a single cell to a mature adult. And there's several stages along the way, right? The child is born, the child grows, begins to walk, begins to talk, develops more maturity, more independence, begins to know how to reason until they get to the point where they're a mature adult who can live on their own. We should think about the Christian life in this way as well. Belief in Jesus is the beginning. It's that spark of life where we begin to grow. And this is what the the Gospel of John was written for. John wrote the Gospel so that we would believe in Jesus and that this process of becoming a child of God would begin. This is what he says in John 20, 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. That's what we've been looking at this morning. But John wrote another book later called 1 John. We went over this last year. We pre- Danny preached through this last year. Now, he wrote this book kind of as a follow-up, I believe, to his gospel. Not so that we would believe, but for believers. Notice what he says in 1 John 5.13. These things, referring to the book of 1 John, I have written to you who believe. You already believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And as Danny preached through that a year ago, you remember there are many proofs, there are many uh, ways that we can identify who is a child of God and who is not. And so I take the final three marks of a child of God from 1 John. The second mark is an honest confession of sin. We saw this in chapter 3 when we were looking at it, like people who don't come to the light stay stay in darkness, but those who become a child of God, they come into the light. And, And this is how John describes it in 1 John 1. 6 through 9. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this is what it looks like to come to the light. We become honest about our sin. And there's a fellowship in this. As, as believers, this is what we do. We acknowledge our sin. We're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to deny it. We're not trying to stuff it down. We're not trying to pretend to be somebody that we're not. There's an honest confession of sin. We all, we all share that as believers, right? And this is the first step to overcoming sin in our life. This is, this is the beginning of the process of Jesus cleansing us from all sin. And so if you're here this morning and there is hidden, unconfessed sin in your life, sort of your pet sins, the sins that nobody else knows about, you're pretending to be somebody, but you know secretly there's something else going on, you're not walking in the light, right? And you have to ask the question, am I a child of God? Because this is what marks those who are becoming children of God. And that leads us to the the third mark of a Christian, Freedom from continual habitual sin. This is what John says in 1 John 3, 9 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children 
of the devil. I love how clear John is, right? He's very black and white. He makes it just straight. I like that. But now he's not talking here about sinless perfection. We just read earlier in the book, he said, if we say that we don't have sin, we're a liar. We're, the truth isn't in us, right? So he's not talking about sinless perfection here. We, we will struggle with sin in our lives. But he's talking about a progress, a growth, an ability to overcome sin in our life, especially practicing habitual sins, right? We, we might call those addictions today, right? Jesus gives us the power to overcome addictive sin in our life so that, that sin is becoming less and less of a thing within us. And that leads us to the fourth mark of a Christian, and that is love, right? Sin becomes less, love becomes more. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, <clears throat> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. <clears throat> As sin becomes less, you know, sin really is the lack of love, right? Sin is selfishness, sin is pride, sin is arrogance, sin is self-centeredness. As that becomes less in our life, is pushed away in our life, is put to death in our life, we grow into the kind of people who love. And this is the goal. This is the goal of, of becoming a child of God. This is the goal of God in our lives, that we would love him and love others, the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, as he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, a singular fruit, love, right? And then all these aspects of love, all these benefits of love, or all these things that accompany love, right? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control. And so this is what it means to be given the power to become a child of God, right? And so that's what we want to ask in ourselves. That's what we want to honestly look at your own life. Do you have faith and belief in Jesus Christ? Are you honest in confessing your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ and, 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 and experiencing the, the cleansing of that sin, the forgiveness of that sin? Is sin becoming less powerful in your life? so that you're having more and more victory over sin? And is love becoming evident within your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your significant relationships? Would you say you're growing in love, becoming a more loving person? This is what Jesus gives us the power to become. That's why Christmas is so significant. That's why Jesus' coming is so significant and makes such a difference in our life. This was not possible before he came. Now notice these four marks of a Christian. I didn't say coming to church. I didn't say giving a lot of money. I didn't say performing religious rituals. You know, most Christians do those things, but you can do those things and not be a child of God. So don't, don't let that deceive you. Jesus even said that there will be those on judgment day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and perform many miracles in your name. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. The idea here is that they continue to practice sin, even though they're doing these great things in Jesus' name, preaching, prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles. None of that matters to Jesus, ultimately. What he wants is a new creation, a changed person, a person who is getting rid of sin in their life and growing in their love for God and other people.
So if you're here this morning and you're experiencing this growing freedom from sin and a greater love for God and others, you have great reason this Christmas season to celebrate because Jesus has given you the power to become a child of God. If you're not a believer here this morning, and this is all kind of new, new to you, but you're thinking, hey, this is, sounds like something I would like. I'd like to get rid of sin in my life. I'd like to grow in my love for God and for others. The Bible just says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Today can be the day that Jesus gives you the power to become a child of God. Let's pray together as we close. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this time of year, um, this Advent season. I know it can be, uh, it can be a different, different experience for many different people, depending on just where we're coming from. For some, it's lonely. For some, it's, it's a good time. For sometimes, it's a lonely time. But Lord, uh, may it be a time of celebration for each one of us here today as we experience your power to become children of God. And, and we thank you, Lord, that as a church, we share this faith, we share this grace that you've given to us, and we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to us and help us to become a church that is an example of the power of Christ in our lives. May we display growing holiness and righteousness in our lives. And most of all, Lord, may we be characterized by love, love for you and love for other people. May that become a reality in our church, Lord, for your honor, your glory, in Jesus' name.